Whereas a lot of engineers that I work with one-on-one have this limiting belief that they get to hide behind the screen and just do what they're told, implement a fun technology, learn interesting new stuff, new tech stacks, and that's it. That's all it takes. Welcome to AB Testing Podcast, your modern testing podcast. Your hosts, Alan and Brent, will be here to guide you through topics on testing, leadership, agile, and anything else that comes to mind. Now, on with the show. Hey everyone, it's Alan, and we're here for another AB Testing Podcast, but it's the ABD Podcast, because we have a special guest here. We have Dogna Bieta. Say hi, Dogna. Hey, everyone. Super happy to have you here. Dogna has a website called The Mindful Dev. Dot com, which I will link to in the show notes, and usually I remember, but I think rather than pause here and, oh, by the way, Brent's here too. Say hi, Brent. Hi. <laughs> I, and I, I think we're the, the, the D-A-B. B, right? Oh, correct. We're the dab podcast. Oh, Brent just, <laughs> Brent, Brent just dabbed it. on video. I think it's going to be a fun day. Yeah, it'll be great. So let's start off. Uh, Dagna, so happy to have you here. Excited. I've read about your stuff and you reached out to me to be on this podcast, so I'm humbled based on what you've done. So can you please just tell us all, tell all three of our listeners a little bit about you and where you came from and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to do that. And first of all, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it because one thing that I love doing is having conversations like the one that we're about to have. So I'm super pumped you decided to, you know, schedule an hour of your day and hop on this conversation with me. So with in terms of what is it that I do, I moved away from being a software engineer to being a career coach for engineers in tech. And the reason it happened, it's, um, you know, over a decade, I would say, as I was going through my own career progression, I noticed that while engineering at the very beginning was really stimulating and exciting and solving problems where uh, was really something that kind of lit my fire. As the time went on and on, I noticed that I um, I wanted to do more of kind of one-on-one deep conversations around engineering, but the engineering in itself was less and less fun, if that makes sense. So I've experienced burnout in my career. That was kind of a huge trigger point for myself. And as a result of that burnout, I ended up seeking some professional help with therapy. And what talk therapy allowed me to do was learning a lot about my internal mental programming. And I use some of that with my clients that I coach one-on-one at this point in time, because what's interesting, there's so many parallels between how we create computer apps or any sort of applications really to how our minds work. So now I like to say that I move from programming computers to reprogramming human minds because that's what I do with my clients. We're already going to go off script here because uh, <laughs> because I think addressing burnout is something I do as a leader a lot, especially during the last couple of years of, of weird work schedules and times and, and lots and lots of Zoom meetings. But also, I think I can, I'll just speak for Brent here, you can tell me to edit it out later, but having a therapist has been so not just good for me, but I can't help but translate what I learned from therapy into helping me coach people on my team. And I think Brent would probably say the same thing. Brent is nodding his head. But, yes, uh, I ab- absolutely you know, would. 
a, a, a side recommendation. I think it's just, I can't emphasize that enough. You know, I can't tell my team, please use our benefits. But I, I so sometimes want to say, please use our benefits. And because you get help on so many different levels. So we had some questions we're going to talk about, but what, I do want you to dive in a little bit more into burnout. So you mentioned that you were facing burnout. Can maybe talk a little bit about how you recognized you were facing burnout and what kinds of things you or what kinds of things you recommend to help deal with that in people? Yeah, absolutely. So the number one thing was things that used to bring a lot of pleasure to my life, like solving problems, uh, creating a new deployment pipeline, making sure that the bug gets tracked and fixed within a day or working on a new product that is being written from, from grounds up totally from scratch. That used to be exciting. And there was a point in my life that I reached that it wasn't exciting anymore, right? So that's number one. If something used to be fun and you used to find joy and pleasure in it, and then you're waking up every single day, literally feeling like, oh, I got to go to work today. You know, not wanting to do it, not having the energy, not having the motivation, procrastinating on the smallest of things like reaching out to someone on a different team that's working with your team, right? So whenever you're noticing those thing, those things, another huge flag to, to observe is irony and sarcasm as you talk to other people, right? Because all these emotions that are related to burnout that are very negative, they tend to spill over. Whether we want them or not, it comes out in how we handle other people in conversations, in communication, whether we're being more or less rude and that's something that you may not notice for yourself, but your partner might tell you, uh, your manager might tell you like, hey, would you mind tone it down a little bit? <laughs> so you'll probably get it from feedback from other people. So in my case, I moved in my professional career. I, I worked as a software engineer back at home in Poland. And I moved to United States and continue my software engineer career here. And one thing I noticed was that, you know, on one hand, it was a cultural difference because I am much more direct than uh, my American coworkers were at the time. But because of the move, um, I experienced something that's called complicated grief, where I essentially had to leave my old life behind to start a new life here in the States with my husband. And I didn't handle it so well. It was really hard to let go of, of that past life. Nobody died, but still, my life completely changed as, as a result of me moving. So with that, what happened was I was... The, the things kind of pancaked for me, you know, the, like one thing happened on top of the other. And when I went to therapy to seek help, oh, and I had a baby along that time as well. So postpartum depression probably played a role. And I went to seek therapy and seek professional help because I was at a point where I was like, you know what, I need someone to let me know how to get out of where I'm at because it's like, I'm, I'm not handling it very well. That was at that point in time. Now, one thing that I have to say too, is that for me, talking through the, what I was going through was helpful. So I didn't need any medication of sorts, because again, 
there's so much power in understanding that human brain is kind of like an app and you can reprogram whatever you want as long as you're open to understanding how that programming was put into place, right? We don't have a git blame to access your brain and say, oh, this is where those beliefs are coming from. I wish we did, but, you know, that's kind of how talk therapy worked for me. Understanding how that, how my past experiences program my mind. So, yeah, we're kind of going off track here no, as no, well, it's but totally I hope that answers your question. A lot of this is like hitting me right smack between the the, the shoulder blades. So, uh, I, I, I'm glad we went down there, but we're going to uh, get on to the question I plan to ask you. Sorry about that. Well, be, before <laughs> we before we do that, Degna, thank you for sharing that. Uh, it, it will probably we can talk about it briefly off air. I have had my unfair share of of dealing with mental illness. Uh, I know it is it is part of your story. Uh, one, again, that I'm not yet willing to talk about on the podcast. Alan knows a great deal about it. But thank you for sharing that and being willing, being brave enough and willing to 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 talk through that. It uh, I am also now going uh, through through therapy. This is a big aspect right uh, an old manager of mine said once you realize that you're sort of digging your own grave the very first thing you need to do is put down the shovel and and recognize that you're 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 sort of in a bad place and that you are you are still empowered to control your own destiny, control your own life, and and move and, and move forward. Thank you for saying that. Now, going back to the burnout thing, one of the things that your story reminded me of. Are you familiar with Daniel Pink? Yes. Okay, and and his three things of what motivates people. Like, I'm wondering if in your move and your code, if there's any chance that you actually ended up losing your purpose. You're like, okay, Ooh, I lost I like all that my question. I liked all my I lost all my friends. Everybody here does everything so freaking weird. I gotta be I gotta be so nice and flowery. Before I could just tell people you're you're a jerk, cut it out. Now <laughs> I pay the cost. Yeah, um, I totally get this whole thing. And so I'm wondering. I love your question, Brent. So in terms of losing my purpose, um, when I was a teenager, what I wanted to do is create the future. And one thing that sounded the most futuristic that I could come up with was becoming an engineer and building robots. So I actually studied robotics, control engineering and robotics um, in university back in Poland, in my home country. And, you know, the moment I graduated, I was actually so excited. I wouldn't have to be coding in my life ever again because I hated programming. <laughs> in my classes, as I was, you know, learning how to build robots, a huge part of it is programming them. And that's on embedded level and then on higher level and then, you know, sending things back and forth through, through different types of networks. But I realized that working as a robotics engineer, it takes so freaking long to build a robot 
that it wasn't fulfilling anymore at that point in time, right? It just took too long to build them for me to find pleasure and have that motivation. So having had that foundation of programming, I did move into a job where I was where I started to code uh, more. And at that time, I also met my husband. So, you know, when I moved to United States, I actually moved uh, because I fell in love. And when people fall in love, they do stupid things. So I just moved to a different continent. Right. (laughs) And, you know, regardless of losing that motivation, one thing that I noticed is even though I was building um, like in my most recent job that I was talking about where I experienced burnout, I was creating the future in the sense that I was building apps that were being deployed and, you know, impacted millions of people every day. But it just didn't feel like it had that big of an impact. You know, technology te- technologically, it was stimulating at the beginning because I need to ramp up on being a mobile engineer very quickly. And that was fun part, learning new things, right? And one thing that I tell my clients all the time, a lot of the time, we're using learning as a procrastination technique, right? Because it feels good to learn something new. But sometimes what you actually need to do that is good for your career and that is good for your growth just doesn't sound that fun. So we don't end up doing it, right? So going back to the motivation, I realized that my motivation was impact, but the impact that I could have on an individual's life was much more important for me than the impact I could have by impacting quote unquote, millions of people that were using the apps that I've built, if that makes sense, right? So the moment I started being more of a mentor and then started moving towards coaching, because there are specific and important differences between mentorship and coaching, which we can talk about later, I noticed that the moment I was able to help people have similar aha moments that I had in my personal growth journey, and help them literally change their whole life for the better, that was so much more fulfilling than any app that I could build, if that makes sense. No, it it makes a lot of sense. And honestly, I think software teams need more coaches. And I've, I don't know if I've done this on the podcast before, but I have definitely talked to friends and and my wife about this. Like someday, if I'm ever like a CEO, I'm going to have I probably call them coaches, but really I want therapists on my on my staff to work with my team. They're so, yeah. Um, without going down that rabbit hole, I do, there's one thing you said uh, you were in your notes that you had some experience talking about. I like to get into, especially in these economic times. There's a segue. Is what are the things an engineer can do, or I was an engineer, an employee, a technical employee, a knowledge worker can do to help layoff proof their career. Yes. So I was um, about to segue into that as well, kind of tagging a little bit along to what Brent said that, you know, previously in my job, I was able to kind of be more upfront and direct to people. And then after I moved to the United States, I wasn't able to do that anymore. You know, one of the things that I learned that I can see now in hindsight is that my communication, my style of communication was being a very aggressive communicator, right? And whenever you're trying to get points across, what's really key is to is to bring more of EQ, which is like this 
emotional intelligence into the conversation rather just than just trying to push your points across, right? Which is a soft skill that's very much critical if you want to lay off proof your career, right? So clear communication is something that I work with my clients on, and that's one of the skills that helps you become layoff proof. And before we dive into other skills, another thing I want to point out that the reason engineers are not as, well, as we experienced in the Q4 of 2022, we were... Dagna, mm -hmm. pause pause for just a second. Looks like... Based on my side, it looks like we lost Alan. Alan, are you there? Oh, yeah. I lost a visual of him, too. I, I don't know. I, I'm going to hope that I'm not sure if what happens with the recording when Zencaster decides to puke on my end. But I imagine you had a really good conversation there that I will. It's again, I, I <laughs> every time I mention the word Zencaster, Zencaster does something to screw up my my audio. Uh that was at least five minutes of our conversation where I'm like, oh, well, at least this is something new for Alan to, to complain about. Uh. <laughs> I have no idea what happened. All right. So Dagna and I both officially forgot our question. Uh, what we were talking were about emotional quotient and – right. Actually, I'm going to tell a quick story, kick it back into you, and you can kind of pick up wherever we left off, and I will magically stitch this back together. In some okay. way that some way that makes sense, and with oh, just okay. segue by complaining about Zencaster. Uh, Zencaster, Zencaster, Zencaster. I hate you sometimes. <laughs> Your story about emotional quotient being direct reminded me of two things. One, there is a book called The Culture Map, which is fascinating, and it talks about how you can say the exact same words to someone from Germany or Poland, and, and, and something from you know France, and they'll take it completely differently. And it's this map of how to communicate with different cultures, which is really important if you're in a, a global global group. The other thing it reminded me of is this story from Microsoft. I did this. This is I was there for about 20 years, but maybe 15 years ago, I did this 360 review where I was an up and coming leader and they had all these people give this extensive feedback and interviews about me. And I met with HR to go over my results. And they said, Alan, People absolutely love the work you do. They think you can do anything, but they also think you're a little bit of an asshole. <laughs> I can relate. Oh, my goodness. I can totally relate <laughs> so to that's that. That's what reminded me. And that's when I began to study emotional quotient and pay attention to how I was coming across and you know, ask people for feedback. I said, how, how did I, did I, what was, my intent was this? What do you think happened? And do those sorts of things. So, I think that's where you were going. I want to drop that in, but I think what you were saying is by growing your emotional quotient, you can help make yourself layoff proof. That's one aspect of it. I don't know what else I missed in there. If you're repeating yourself, um, it'll be beneficial for me. So how, how do you go about, how do you suggest going about improving your emotional quotient, emotional intelligence? So first off, what you pointed, hinted at there um, was really key. Understanding that, you know, depending on where you come from, how people will come across will be different uh, depending on their, you know, cultural background. And uh, there's a really cool tool that I use with my clients, which is called Hofstede model, which helps you kind of 
compare on a very high level the different cultures that you and your coworker coming from might, uh, you know, perceive certain things differently. But in terms of, you know, becoming, in, increasing the EQ, uh, one of the things is empathy. But I feel like empathy is important in communication, but also in like having a business understanding kind of setting, right? So as an engineer, you've been hired to bring value to the business that you work for. How do you bring that value if you are not able to communicate with people across the board? So one thing is communicating with your peers who have like similar level of detail and understanding, like how do you work with them on setting expectations, realizing that are that there may be some hidden assumptions as you're trying to solve problems or, you know, how do you ask clarifying questions or how do you actively listen to someone when you're having a conversation and then give them that kind of feedback so they get it that you're on the same page, right? So clear communication is really key here and being empathetic helps with that. So... If you're also, anyone listening here, coming across as arrogant, and I know I did for sure, there was there was this um, one time that I got feedback that I sounded like a total asshole. And the story was that the company I work for, unfortunately, had to make some cuts. Uh, they had to let people go. And we have this company-wide meeting, and I'm asking this question because I thought that the leadership level was not aware how the layoffs that they did and the engineering people that they let go, how that impacted like my day to day in our deployment and, you know, caring for the apps that we had. So I thought they were not aware. And then um, my boss's boss comes to me and tells me, Dagna, why did you call our leadership team a bunch of idiots in front of the whole company? And I'm like, what? (laughs) That was not my intention. Is that really how it came across? Like I, it was just hard for me to understand, but that was on one hand, this lack of assertiveness in how I communicated because I never had to communicate assertively, you know, I had to learn what it means and how to get my points across and how to help people feel validated whenever we're having conversations. And one book that is fabulous on the topic is from this FBI negotiator, F- uh, Chris Voss, who talks about how to, um, you know, negotiate as if your life depended on it, because he used to do that in his job as the FBI negotiator, right? Brilliant book, highly recommended. And it gives a lot of feedback and points on, you know, how to become more assertive, understand where people are coming from. But in that more critical setting that I feel is more appealing to engineers, than when talking about empathy, because I feel like the word itself is not that appealing to engineers, if that makes sense. It's very valuable, don't get me wrong. It's just certain words have this associated context with them and we feel a certain way about them. And, you know, if someone says that trigger word, you're like, ah, not paying attention anymore, if you know what I'm saying. But going back to layoff proofing, because that's kind of where you got cut off for a second there, Alan, was, you know, being clear communicator is really key. And this is, if you think about it, like a transferable skill that will help you in any job you have, whether you're a QA engineer, whether you're a software engineer, whether you move on to being a team lead, you know, being able to communicate clearly will help you in any sort of job, in any sort of career track that you might select for yourself. The other things are 
collaboration, um, proactivity and ownership, which is also uh, something we can dive into more. Having that business acumen, which I hinted a little bit earlier, understanding what it is that your business is doing and how you actually provide value within your day-to-day. And then marketing. You know, a lot of engineers I work with have this limiting belief, my work speaks for itself, which it doesn't, right? So yeah, like there's so many topics here that we can dive into. Uh, Let me know which one sparks most of your interest. I will, but I I just want to, I mean... Everything you said, a million percent on the mark. One thing before I forget, I believe the Chris Voss book is it's called Never Split the Difference. Yes, um, thank I, you. I, I do recommend that as well. Jerry Weinberg uh, says in a bunch of actually a couple of his books that in software, eventually it's always a people problem. And even in the mythical man month, Brooks calls out the problems in communication that plague teams trying to grow. Yet, even though the Mythical Man Month is like 100 million years old by now, I'm estimating, uh, a lot of teams just, a lot of people just don't realize yet how critical, not just, and you can say communication, it's not just talking, but you mentioned active listening and listen and listening for intent and asking clarifying questions, clarifying understanding. Like how many times, and this is a rhetorical question for you two and our listeners, has a software team agreed to go do something and then walked out of the room with seven different ideas of what they were going to go do? And, But what, what makes you more valuable is like everything you talked about between marketing and, and communication and collaboration, these are the things that make you a force multiplier on your team. These are the things that make you valuable. It's far more valuable than the you know, coding's easy relatively than the human part. I'm going to make that statement. You can disagree with me or not. But what, uh, so was there a question in there? I just wanted to underscore everything you said. Maybe dive into, Brent's laughing at me. The thing that I, when I coach teams, I think the thing that's maybe hardest from all that Maybe talk about that a little bit more. How do you, like, how do you teach or how do you, when, when you're coaching people, how do you coach around active listening and clarifying questions? And what tips do you have for people to get beyond shallow agreement? That's a great one. Okay, we can talk about that. But I'm curious if Brent has anything to add in terms of, you know. Brent always him- has things to add. <laughs> Him managing people as well, right? That's a da- that's a dangerous invite, Tegna. Uh, um, the yeah, a lot of what you said resonated. I don't know that you said this directly. I have been a manager for multiple years. Uh, I uh, have had. There's a story I had of an employee uh, during a reorg. Um, a couple of employees found out that they might reorg to Brent. Oh no. So they went and did an investigation and talked to my other employees. And they said, well, what can you say about Brent? And they'll, and they said, Brent is brutally honest. That was sort of, that is, by the way, that is my, uh, my, what is it? Politically correct way of translating asshole. Brent was brutally honest, and he said, literally, number one, 
you really should not ask Brent any question you don't want the answer to, because he <laughs> will tell you. So one of the things you didn't said is, so the emotional, so not only am I a huge believer in active listening, but I think the onus is on you, the communicator, to help encourage, act, uh, I'm going to invent a term, active hearing. You need to understand, wait, what you said is empathy. A lot of people will go, oh, you need to feel what they're feeling and all, and, and that turns off a lot of people because, right, it's, it sounds very touchy-feely. And, yep. right, I tell, I tell my employees I have two emotions, uh, depressed and pissed off, and I use neither of them very often, right? But when I do, <laughs> okay. that's all I do, okay? It, it, it's, but the, the sense of empathy that I think is important, I think it's valuable to bring up negotiation, um, and that sort of skill set, because the, the the set of empathy that you really need, uh, at minimum, is to understand where they're coming from. Because uh, you you know the old cliche, put yourself in their shoes. Um, now, from negotiation tactics, I would say, okay, if you're in a uh, a communication where negotiation is involved, right, really. If you set the other person and get them defensive, then the conversation's over. All they're going to do is defend their position. You're exactly. not you're not going to create a win-win where everyone walks out happy. For me, the the biggest book uh, that that has transformed my point of view on that one is called Getting to Yes, where it, it's it's a whole series. It's, it's an older book. I'm an older guy. Um, but it's a great series of how what, what the guy did is go through and then they discuss the types of arguments that are being made and, and, and how, to, how to redirect those discussions into something that then has a, a chance of becoming a win-win. Yes. In terms of, of the other thing that you said that resonated with me, that reminded me a great deal. So I mentor a lot of folks and a lot of times I'll get someone who is, who is new to management. And one of the biggest piece of advice that I give them is, look, you need to manage your employees. You need to produce business value. Like the, the reason why you're delivering, like the reason why your team is formed, that's still important. But in the back of your head, you always have to remember, 10 years from now, no one is going to remember what code you and your team wrote. No one. But the people who you were managing, every single one of them is going gonna, is gonna to remember how you, you helped them or didn't, how you got that product out or didn't. Right. So that the legacy when you're a manager, your legacy is the people that work for you and worked around you. I don't know if that helps as motivation, but yeah, that resonated. And I'm going to cut myself off now. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind of you, Brent. Um, I totally agree with what you were saying in terms of, you know, empathy being a word that for a lot of people triggers 
like, ugh, this is touchy-feely. I don't care about what other people are feeling. I just want to get my job done, right? And here's the realization that comes with empathy that, you know, I like to highlight is that let's look at the neuroscience of it. Let's look at human evolution. Let's look at the tools that you have available as a human being in order to help other human beings cooperate with you. Super helpful in the work setting, right? Especially if you're part of a team and trying to accomplish something. So whenever you know, we, took, we look at it from the perspective of neuroscience and what it has to say about body language, what it has to say about uh, creating a safe space, psychological space, so that people don't either shut down and stop listening completely to what you're saying or become defensive, like you said, right? Whenever they're becoming defensive, then whatever you say is not going to matter because they're protecting their ego. They're protecting themselves because they are feeling under threat and under attack. So if you if we look at it from the neuroscience and evolutionary perspective, again, this is a highly valuable and critical skill to help you get other people on board with what is it that you're trying to accomplish, right? Whether that's shipping a new product, creating a new feature, agreeing on maybe creating a new team, right, for a research project, or making sure that you implement a certain process within your company because uh, it could increase business value. So at the end of the day, just like you were talking about it, Alan, a, a while ago, is that at the core, as an engineer, what you're doing is creating a product or making sure that the product is good for other people and you're doing it with other people. So people are key there. Whereas a lot of engineers that I work with one-on-one have this limiting belief that they get to hide behind the screen and just do what they're told, implement a fun technology, learn interesting new stuff, new tech stacks, and that's it. That's all it takes. And this is not at the core of anyone's job. Yeah, it's fun and it can be really entertaining and stimulating intellectually, but that's what's fun for your career isn't always beneficial and isn't going to get things done, right? So. It kind of goes back to what your priorities are in terms of how do you see your career going? Where do you want to go? Are you comfortable in the spot that you're in? Do you want something more? Most of the people that I work with, they feel that hidden potential within them and they want to do more. They're just not aware how they're stopping themselves because what happens is most of those limiting beliefs like my work speaks for itself. I don't have to you know, be an empathetic listener because empathy is blah. Um, <laughs> most of those limiting beliefs are hidden in the blind spot. And until someone who has the experience of either going through the exact same experience as you did or coaching other people and helping them get out of that rut, getting unstuck, you're not going to be able to see it for yourself because it's exactly in your blind spot. Right. So that's something that I do with my clients, addressing those limiting beliefs that they have in terms of one, how they operate, how the world operates, how to work with other people. And, you know, going back to uh, tips on active listening. There's a really cool exercise that's very simple. If you want to see if you're a good listener, is to close your eyes and try to count from one to 50. Right? And see how that goes. Because, I mean, presumably... If you're not able to listen to your own voice in your own head, someone who you 
probably like, how are you going to be able to listen, actively listen to what other people have to say? So that's a fun exercise to do and see whether or not you can actually focus on yourself, counting to 15 in your own mind without disruptions. If you're, if you have, um, you know, good listening skills. And the second thing is, I would say a lot of communication is around intent and understanding the intent of other people, right? So whenever you're coming to a conversation, you're trying to negotiate something, even if it's something as simple as what we're getting for dinner tonight. Uh, there's this really cool quote by Jack Hanfield. Um, I really, I really like his work in the books that he has. So one of the things that he says uh, is that at every point in time, what you're and anyone is doing is, you know, doing it in order to meet their needs with the information, the awareness, and the skills that they have. So if they're coming across as a jerk, maybe they don't have the skills to communicate better. Or maybe the information that they have, if they keep asking the same question again and again and again, maybe they're not able to process the information you gave them. Or maybe that information wasn't clear uh, for them. Or they need to get it delivered in a different way. Or, you know, for some reason, their needs aren't being met, so they're not really able to focus on what it is that you're telling them. So whenever you come to a conversation, understanding this basic psychology, that at any point in time, people are doing their best, given the skills, information, and um, awareness that they have in order to meet their needs, that makes any conversation so much easier because it's not about you anymore, right? So you don't have to get defensive. It's the baggage that they bring into the conversation that can help you get them on board with whatever is the idea that you're presenting, like what, what to have for dinner. I hope that makes sense. No, that makes so much sense. So much good stuff in there. Uh, I'm going to build on it a little bit. If I remember what I was going to say. Tacos. Tacos. What? That's what people should. Let's have tacos for dinner. (laughs) So, oh, tacos for dinner, of course. See, I was actively listening. Yeah. Uh, I was was thinking by telling Brant to actually count to 50 without getting distracted, you put him into his depressed mood. Now, actually, actually, hold hold on to your question. I, I I see that you're trying to form it anyway, but that one to fifty, I simulated that, and I would actually say, everyone will go, oh, of course I can do that. It's one to fifty, right? But the second second you actually begin to do that, you realize, wow, fifty is a long count. Right. And the reason why I think that's an important training for active listening, and I would actually even further and say, and do it every day. Start the day closing your eyes, counting to 50, because it is practice for the coaching habit. Right. That's something that we've talked on on here before is a big aspect of it is slow down, spend a little extra time listening with the point of understanding and with what Dagna is saying, uh, um, understanding like where are they coming from in terms of their skills or their capabilities? Can you understand what their needs are? Tying it all together, that's all helpful to, to, to sort of construct a, a win-win conversation. All right. So to me, when I went from being the 
the asshole. And the difference was I would go into a meetings knowing I was right because I was right most of the time. And when people were wrong, they were obviously not as smart as me and I didn't need to listen to them. That's the way I felt um, because unfortunately at that time in Microsoft, that's the way my mentors operated and that's the way I was indirectly coached to act. You know, I love to learn stuff. I don't know if it's procrastination. I just love it no matter what. And I started studying emotional quotient. But what really got me to engage in active listening was the second level of listening. There are the words coming out of your mouth. But then there's the, also the analysis of when I'm talking, how am I coming across trying to read the room? And then when people are talking to me, if they say something I think is wrong or I disagree with, I can clarify understanding. I can. What I'm trying to do is really understand what I tell my team all the time is behavior comes from motivation. So what can I do to understand the motivation of where they're coming from? And by clarifying understanding, I am coming from programming. I spend a lot of my time as a professional debugger almost at Microsoft. I want to debug where they're coming from. I'm going to ask clarifying questions, help me figure out what is the motivation behind this decision or behavior they have, which is super interesting to me. So now I'm actively listening because I want to, when I have a, co- a good conversation in a one-on-one or a small group meeting, this conversation is happening at a couple different levels and I can't help but engage. And I'm, you know, this question around, I will we'll use language on my team around to clarify understanding, blah, blah, blah. Or to, um, we'll talk about next steps to make sure we're clear on next steps. And then one thing we do a lot, which Dagna did about 10 minutes ago, was you, know, you get much better alignment when everybody talks. And one thing we talk about when we do, when we do active listening is drawing people into the conversation if they haven't spoken yet or spoken in a while. That was, when you drew Brent in, I go, ah, she doesn't know that Brent talks forever, but she's doing the right thing, which is really cool. So... One other thing, the more you talk, this is like stuff you're gluing a, together a bunch of pieces that I, that is, I think it's a systems thinking, which is missing from a lot of engineers when they get stuck in their career. When I come out of college, I can just program. And then people who are just programming all day wonder, well, I write really good code. My code speaks for itself. How come I'm not growing? And it's all those things you, it's all those things you talked about where you have to, uh, begin to communicate and lead other teams. Uh, you talked about being proactive. And one of the things I'm talking to some of my senior engineers about, as people who want to get the senior, is there's a point where, and Brent knows this from, happens at, at senior at Microsoft as well, is maybe it's, maybe it's industry-wide. There comes a point where when you first start, you are told what to do. But the more senior you get, the more you are expected to figure out what the right thing to do is. Does that ring true for you? Does that? I'd be curious, when you talked about proactivity, is that part of it? Or maybe can you expand on what you meant by being a proactive engineer? Absolutely. So like in terms of growing your career, what is it that you want to do, right? Because a lot of the time becoming, getting into tech is like this comfy, cushy job that gives you amazing benefits. And, you know, you get the social status too. Like, oh, I work at Microsoft, right? I'm a cool person because how many people, you know, get to that particular position or I make, you know, whatever salary I make and I'm really living a comfortable life now. So that's something that people kind of follow and it's evolutionary, right? Because we want to 
provide and we want to like set ourselves up for success. But then what happens is whenever we get comfortable, um, that motivation is often lacking because there's lack of alignment with our values, right? So just like in my case, I realized that what was really valuable for me was to have deep kinds of conversations on a very personal and deep level and help people in a one-on-one setting. And I'm getting goosebumps as I'm telling you this. But for me, this is something that I wake up and I want to do whatever's going on in my life. I just love doing what I do, coaching. And discovering that that was a value for me took quite a while. I didn't like wake up one day and just knew what I wanted to do. So there's a discovery process involved. But you have to be kind of become conscious. And maybe it's part of maturity. Maybe it's part of like the phase of life that you're in. Um, you know, whether or not you have a family or people depending on you and your salary or not. So it's really about this personal growth trajectory and how a career can support a life with meaning, a life with purpose, a life that, you know, you'd be excited being 99 years old telling, you know, your neighbors, your grandkids and people who are willing to listen. I'm really on board here with what you were talking about in terms of proactivity and leadership, but more like self-driven, like what is it that you want and how you can structure career around doing what it is that you want? Because I mean, tech has so many opportunities and so many chances to even create certain roles for yourself within a company if you're able to communicate the business value that it was going to bring. Now, in terms of the education, if you think about how we're educated, excuse me, how we're educated and how the professional life works, we're primed to think that way. You know, the work speaks for itself. Why? In college, what do you do? You get assignments, then you send them to your professor or TA. They go through your code and they see what works, what doesn't, if there are comments, if they're not, if it's well-written or not, does it compile or not. And then you get a grade because someone went into your code and looked at it. In a professional setting, People who are decision makers about your promotion, raise, advancement, they typically don't have idea what it is that you're doing because you're working kind of underneath the hood. So as as long as things work and the software is producing what it's supposed to be producing functionally, nobody cares. (laughs) And yes, I know you're going to say, yes, people care. That's true. But what I'm trying to say is we're primed to think in a way to get that feedback to, for, for the work to speak for itself. I hope that, that makes sense. And then um, last thing that I wanted to mention is whenever, you're, whenever, Alan, you were talking about being in the room thinking, yeah, I'm smarter than them. I've been doing this. I'm the subject matter expert here. So of course they should listen to me, right? And that's a huge assumption that you're coming to a conversation with. I, I was very, very wrong, to be clear. <laughs> Well, to be completely honest here, there was a point in time where I believed the same thing. Like, yo, you hired me to do this job and now you're not listening to my feedback? What's wrong with you? (laughs) So I can totally resonate with that kind of thinking. But the truth is that the people that you were having conversations with or I was having conversations with at that point in time, they had a different perspective, right? And if you're looking at value, business value, as that unifying perspective, that 
where you can tell who was more right or who was more wrong. Because engineers, again, tend to chase what's intellectually stimulating, not necessarily, you know, what's fun, not necessarily what's best for business. So. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I want to spend all day, like there's so much good information in what, what you're talking about, Dagna, that I would love to spend all day. I think our listeners and, and, a thousand other people need to hear this stuff. It's just so important. So, but the clock says it's time to about time to wrap up, but I just want to thank you for uh, hanging out with us today and, and just dropping knowledge bombs right and left. Super fantastic. So thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. And I appreciate again, you having me and, you know, like I love to give all these value knowledge bombs as you call them left and right, because at the end of the day, you know, there's a difference between knowing things and a difference in living from that place. And I hope you could tell that I walk my talk. So everything Definitely. that I help my clients with is something that I've had to learn the hard way. And so, you know, if anyone is looking for that kind of feedback, for that kind of acceleration in their career, they're more than welcome to check out my website, themindfuldev.com, and see if they want me to be there to support them in their growth, because I can absolutely do that. I, I think that I can think of lots of people you could help already. Awesome. <laughs> Brent, any final words? Uh, everyone, please go check Dagna out at her, her website. Uh, I do think she has a lot of insightful feedback to, to be able to give you. And if you are at that point in your career where you feel lost and, and just remember there is always resources out there to help you. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Uh, we'll see you next time on AB Testing. 